Okay, this is podcast 29, and I'm sitting here with uh, Jane Townsend and Alan Gross, two dear longtime friends, but they also occupy a key role or place in my life, in my career, in the history of healthcare, advertising, PR, and medical education. We're going to talk about the last 50 years from their history, what they see, what they saw as changes occurring, because I think what's missing at least with the people I know, a lot of the newer physicians, a lot of the newer people, they don't realize that 50 years ago, changes were begun that we're seeing come to fruition and that have led the way for other changes. Let me introduce Jane Townsend and Alan Gross. First, thank you very much for agreeing to this. And let's just open it up. You joined 50 years ago, early on. Should we move this to the Museum of Natural History? <laughs> yeah, that's, I know, that am me, I making it? It makes me feel like a pterodactyl or something. <laughs> no, I know, and I don't mean to do that, but I mean, I don't have that perspective. When I came into Levy in the late 70s, Bruce Wolf was there, and there were talk about, I think Froelich was gone by that time. Yes, it was. And But there were some great stories. And, and what I'm trying to get are less about the stories, but a narrative to say, at that time, both of you came into this. What was it like? Why? Jane? Well, I think it was, <clears throat> it was kind of interesting because the drugs were pretty boring at the time. There weren't breakthrough drugs going on at the time. There were antibiotics. There were some steroids. There wasn't a lot going on research-wise. I mean, I guess it was going on in the lab, but it wasn't ready for promotion. So you did a lot with Me Too drugs. You did a lot with trying to compare one antibiotic to the other without being able to compare them. It was interesting, and it was harder, I think, because you didn't have the publicity at the time of breakthrough that pre, you know that precedes a, a product launch now. So it was, it was an interesting time. I agree. It was, in a way, more of a fun time because you were so restricted. I mean, the restrictions now are laughable compared to what we had back in the 60s and 70s. Really? Well, we were still suffering under the, the shadow of Estes Kefauver and his, and his series. You don't even remember who was. Yes, I do. I, I remember. <laughs> but he held a series of hearings about the industry which blasted it, you know, the, the blasting hasn't stopped, but, but in fact, it had much more of an impact than, than it has these days. And, um, and the industry was, was in a corner and, and quite scared about, you know, getting called out in Congress again. Um, you couldn't even say FDA approved back then. No, now I, I see I, it everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember those days. You can't say FDA approved in that. It's funny, in my short history, I mean, you mentioned Kefauf. Oh, yeah, I remember those, but it totally went away. It has a sense to everybody that pharma suddenly turned not bad, but they're, you know, they're the dark sciences, what they're doing with direct-to-consumer promotion and so forth. But back then, Jane, as you said, it was more about trying to find little nuances within the brands to have one compete against another. And it was more working for the sales rep. I mean, a lot of it, time and effort was spent on getting your sales reps to be able to present the product. I mean, there was journal advertising, there was direct mail, but... The sales rep carried the bulk of the spending that I remember mm -hmm. up until probably the 80s or maybe the 70s. 
it was the sales rep. You wanted to arm them with good material, and then you'd have your advertising and your direct mail after that. At that time, working with the clients with pharma, what was it like? Was it wasn't it the, called pharma then. Yeah, it was. It was called what the drug company. No, pharmaceutical industry. It was called the ethical drug industry. And that's a great name. That's you're darn right. It's a great name, and it, it's what the industry was back then. Ethical. It was extremely careful about how it presented itself. There were a few, a few buccaneers around. Some of them still around, as a matter of fact. But for the most part, it was a straightforward business. And, and I always felt it was far more challenging than any other kind of advertising because you're in this box, this box that was, you know, the FDA regulations and the, and the labeling. And yet you still had to be creative within that box. You couldn't step outside it. You couldn't even push the edges or they would come down. And also, back then, way back then, most of the people within the company were pharmacists or medical people or laboratory people. I think I, I was probably one of the few, <laughs> the first, yeah, who was yeah. not. I came in from a different background, and it that's, was... That's quite true. And, and in fact, most of the people on the agency side were out of the industry. Yeah, out, of the, I, out of the sciences, you might yeah. say. And I came in, I was a news reporter, and I was a sore thumb because, A, I had no science background at all, and it was, it was tough. I was, I was weird. <laughs> Why they hired me, I don't know. And, and that's interesting, Jane. I want to go back. You came from a newspaper. You were a reporter and came into this industry. Alan, I think you were on the sales side or... Yeah, I was, uh, I was a microbiologist in uh, academia looking for honest work. So I got into advertising. No, I, um, I started out as a sales rep and then a hospital sales rep. And I was very fortunate to work for two guys, field managers, whose attitude was the best thing they could do was put the best people into the home office. And they poured people, promoted people like crazy. They were wonderful. And I got an opportunity and I was given a choice. I could be in market research or advertising. I didn't even think for a minute about that one. Yeah. And then leaving the ethical pharmaceutical side and going out, what was that decision like? Well, I mean, did you have a vision? Did you think about something? I mean, you were working inside for the ethical pharmaceutical. Yeah. Yeah. But he was working at Squibb. Squibb had an in-house advertising agency no, no, no. when you went out, when you decided to leave the pharmaceutical. Oh, when I decided it, to yeah. leave and go out on my own. But before that, we had two or three agencies that represented Squibb. And we worked with all of them, including Froelich and, you know, several others. But that decision to go out on your own, to leave within, you went to something. I don't believe, you know, in knowing you and, and knowing Jane, I don't believe you left because I'm fed up with this. You had a vision or you saw something that you wanted to achieve. Am I romanticizing this enough? No, I saw the results of my cancer test. And, <laughs> And said, you know what, there's got to be more than this. And I said, let me try to do it on my own. But you had actually gone to the agency side a year or two before that. Yeah, yeah. I worked for Lindy Wolf. Oh, you, oh, I, I. And then I worked for Max Davis. Okay. But that, that brings up a point that I think is really important. Almost every agency back then 
had somebody's name, had a man's name on it. It didn't have a <laughs> person's name, it had a man's name on it. Right. Because it was a very personal business. And it was personal over long periods of time. There were relationships built between a Bill Froelich and, and the people at Squid or the people at Merck or wherever else he was doing business that lasted for decades. And there was loyalty that went both ways in those relationships. I know that because I tried to get rid of an agency at one point and they said, no, that's been our agency for years and we're not going, because I was having trouble with it. And you couldn't, you couldn't fire an agency without going through an act of Congress about once you went out on your own and you were doing this, you talked about the constraints of working within a very well-defined set of rules and guidelines. In doing that, I mean, I know from the inside the creative process and what it's about, but I think others may not. How would you look at that? How would you approach selling something? Because that's what we're ultimately doing in, in this business. We're selling something and being on the confines. I'm just curious about the process for doing the creative product that you guys... Well, first of all, you had to know everything there was to know about the product. And because these were basically simple products, there were not a great deal of things to be learned. On the other hand, you had to know how to translate what relatively minor advantage you had into something that was a stopper. Meaningful to your audience. Yeah. Well, both, I mean, you worked for meaningful. You couldn't always find meaningful. Sometimes you went for dramatic. Sometimes you went for, you know, something, something that would just catch somebody's eye or tweak their, you know, imagination. imagination. And, and I found it probably the most exciting time creatively in my, my whole career because it was hard. And also, and also with really small budgets. I mean, a, bu a budget back then, you know, you were just you were just eking out little things that you could do, and that was a real challenge to to do something exciting and innovative within budget. You know, which was small back then. I don't know what the budgets are now. I can just imagine when I look at these consumer advertising. I mean, there's probably more spent on, on one consumer ad than we did on the whole year on one product. And for the tweaks and the creative you were doing, was the client responsive? Were they up to speed? Do they feel in partnership with you when you came in? You'd come in with a few concepts and all of them you were confident with. I mean, going back to that relationship, did they... Did I they... Actually, I, I disagree. You didn't come in with concepts. It was a collaborative thing from day one. If you do it right, back then anyway, I don't know if it's that way now, but it was a collaboration from the start. So when you went in with your programs and your... They they got it because they were part of it. You know, they they played along. I mean, and I think it was fun for them too. That you know, it wasn't a them and us. It was it was a team, a collaborative team. And from what I hear today, it doesn't sound like it. No, it's not. I think you end up getting your book. You end up getting all the information, the market, the share, the goals, and that, and then you come back. Really? Yeah. yeah which to me sounds very boring. Actually, when, when we were doing some new business pitches at one point, we and it was expensive to do a new business pitch, and Alan had a really interesting rule for the most part. He said, you know, we'll do this, and we'll put a lot into it, but you have to give us your time, too. And we want to meet with all of your researchers. We want to meet with all of your people. We want 
all of our questions answered. And if you don't devote the time, then we're not going to devote the time. And it paid off. We got really good input. And I think that's why we had and it good... Allowed us allowed us to make presentations that were meaningful. quite a bit different from what a lot of our competitors were coming up with. So as you're doing this... But when Jane says this was expensive, I'll take you back to the late... 80s? Mid-80s, early 80s. We had a, an association of medical advertising agencies that met, oh, maybe once a month, maybe once every other month, to talk about it and bring in speakers, and like, like any other trade association. Couldn't talk about pricing, you couldn't talk about you know, things like that. But basically, the people who were running agencies back then were ex-salesmen who didn't know the first damn thing about running an agency. So we were learning from each other. And one of the things we did was a blind survey about what it actually actually cost to do a new business pitch. Now remember, this is back in the 80s. And if you took in the staff time and the out-of-pockets and the research and all the other thing and the production that you had to go through in order to make a major pitch, in the 19, mid-1980s, it cost an agency a quarter of a million dollars to make a pitch. That is absolutely true. We checked it out with about probably 10 different agencies providing data and then we had an outside accountant look at it. Blind. And, yeah, blind, not knowing who was who, and came up with a real number. And the biggest piece of it, of course, was people's time. That, you know, you're taking time away from your client, your existing clients to spend on this client. And in the agency business, your biggest expense is people. So that's where a lot of it is. But that was a huge expense. Yeah. Another thing that was a big change was 17.5%. You used to get 17.5% of the budget. That was right. that the was, fee. <laughs> that was the fee. There was no argument. That's what it was. Couldn't get more. You shouldn't get less. Well, you didn't do it on hours. You weren't billing hours. So you knew exactly what you had to work with. And then it was up to you whether you were going to push further and put more into it. As you're doing this, you've got sort of a fixed budget that you're getting. You're hoping the brand says... 17.5% of a quarter million is better than 17.5% of 100,000. So you could put more people on it. Right. But as you're doing this and you're working with fixed budgets and you're trying to be creative, I had this sense that there was between the agencies this sort of nuclear proliferation of trying to one-up each other. Or maybe it was on the client side that... We're doing this work. Oh, look at the ad they did or look at the sales materials they did. We have to do it better. And people were trying to one-up each other. Well, I mean, of course. The, that's called competition. That's the business. Yeah. That's, I mean, you want to be better. You want to be smarter. Of course you do. You know, that's competition. And, and I think there's nothing wrong with competition. I think that's good. And it pushes. Oh, I mean, we were we dreamed up way back when <laughs> computerized sales aids before they, 19, I mean. 1979. 1979, we decided, when we opened our business, we said, well, you know, we got to be a little bit different from everybody else. Who needs another medical advertising agency? So we said, okay, we'll come up with computerized sales aids. And computers were just on the horizon. You, you have know. to understand, we didn't know what a computer was. <laughs> we were used to decks of punch cards and <laughs> these big printouts that would come to you from market research or sales research that you had to wade through and try to figure out what they meant. So Alan and I decided, well, we, if we're going to be a computer agency, computerized agency, we better go to the computer show that was going on here in New York. And this was 70s, 
78, 77 or 78 when the computer show is going on. We walked in, we're the oldest people there, the tallest the people, tallest they're all 12 year olds, you know. And there was there were a couple of little tabletop exhibits, one from this company called Apple we'd never heard of. A guy named Steve Jobs and, and Steve Wozniak standing behind the table. Another table, Bill Gates and- you know, Really? Yes, and I we, mean, this was a, a nascent industry. We, and we were going there to try to learn about, and you know, we had learned bits and bytes and RAM and all this stuff we'd never heard of. So we started learning about computers and then- And we bought two computers. Yeah. We bought one HP programmable computer, which was actually the first one we turned into a, into a sales thing. And one other computer, a desktop computer, and we had to make a choice. What brand do we buy? Now, most of the brands don't exist anymore. Because we were going to do a computerized sales aid. For a pharmaceutical company. And we had to go out in the field and test it to prove to them that it worked. So we decided, we looked at the whole field and we said, well, there's this company called Apple and there's, I don't think IBM was even in the business then. Nobody had heard of Apple. Yeah, What's an Apple? Sinclair and all these other things. And we said, wait a minute. Who are they over there? That's Radio Shack. Radio Shack. They have stores everywhere. If you're out on the road and the computer breaks, you can walk into Radio Shack and get it fixed. So we bought a trash 80, a Radio Shack, Radio Shack TRS-80. And we had to put the program, it, it was a tape recorder, you know, like they used to record music right. and stuff. You, the program was on the tape and you had to put the tape in and load it into the computer and then you'd do your work and then you copied it back on there because there was no memory in that box of the computer at all. We told one of our first big clients, we said, we have the first computerized sales aid. And they said, no, we want it. And they said, well, you got to get it from us. So we had a presentation to them. They loved it. They said, okay, we got to test this. So we went out to a meeting in California of family practitioners, I think. And we had three of these trash 80s. And we set it up and we took, it was a doctor's meeting to see if they were going to get involved with it. And everyone at the meeting was furious because their doctors are lined up going all the way around the room to sit down and play with this computer. <laughs> and all the other exhibitors were just so angry. And we took pictures and they had a couple of investigators there and said, hey, this is good. So we were trying to be competitive. What's interesting is that this was new. It was exciting. The clients wanted it. You did it. And it was this working relationship, as you described, Alan. They were interested in you. They thought this was neat. And you're moving through this period of time where there's subtle changes going on that you notice. Number one, you're busy now. You're getting bigger and you need to find people. And you're not going to find all the medical people that used to occupy it. How were you approaching the need to hire? I know I was hired and I was lucky enough to work with you, but... You were a fluke. <laughs> Because we hired mostly women. Yeah, and mostly this is, this inexperienced. Is in, in an area, era when women were not very prominent in the industry, certainly not on the agency side. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, there were one or two women in production in different agencies, you know, Harridans who would, who would beat, on the, beat <laughs> on the printers and everything. But there weren't very many women in account services and creative services. And we decided... First of all, we didn't want anybody with bad habits, so we tried to hire very young people, a year or two out of college, some with no college, 
some who didn't finish high school, <laughs> and brought them along and trained them. But they were smart, and we trained them in what they needed to do. And I always thought we were going to get an EEOC. <laughs> That's when we were 80% female. Right, I, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> and Alan said, well, if I could find some qualified men, I'd hire them. <laughs> Thank you. Hiring, we made a few hiring mistakes. The, the first hiring mistake we made when we, our first account executive we hired, we hired a top-notch salesperson. And we thought, wow, this is what we need is a salesperson because we both hated sales and we weren't very good at it. So we figured we'd get somebody who was. And that person lasted maybe six or eight months because what we learned is a lot of salespeople don't have ongoing relationships. You know, when you have a client agency relationship, if you really work it right, you become partners. Yeah. But a salesperson goes from this door to that door to that door and they come back a month later or a couple of weeks later. And so this person couldn't build those relationships. And so that was a big blow because we were doing, the two of us were doing all the account services work ourselves and it was getting to be a little hard. Yeah. But we learned. And so we started hiring people who had good people skills, who had good, mainly it was the questions they asked. If somebody asked good questions, they were probably a pretty good candidate because that means they've got an inquiring mind. Jane, at least you're <laughs> consistent because I remember first working with you, you said the most important question you can ask is why. Yep. <laughs> it's absolutely true. The, for one of the first people we hired, she came looking for a job as a receptionist. And we were in a tiny little office then on Union Square. It was our first office. Everything was piled up on top of everything else. You know, we were sitting in each other's laps. We sat and talked to her, and we were very impressed with her because she was very bright. She was going to be a bookkeeper receptionist. But she, yeah, she was going to you know, answer the phone, take care of the books. Well, we started walking through the agency to show her. All three, all three rooms. Yeah. <laughs> and show her what things were. And we walked past a set of progressive proofs. You remember what those were? Yeah. Printer's proofs. proofs. Yeah. yeah, right. The four color. Yeah. And she stopped, and she picked it up. And she said, what's this? How does this work? He said, you're hired. <laughs> she later went on to head our production. whole production department to set up our video department and film department. She later went on to become a senior VP for us and other people in account services. Took and over our international division. Yeah. Ran I that. Mean, those are the kind of people we hire. Right. You and, knew them. You knew them. <laughs> yeah, I, I worked with them. There were, there were people who were curious. And, and, and as I said in a previous podcast, one of the things you said, Alan, was we expect people to make mistakes because if you're making mistakes, you're stretching, you're doing, you're pushing. Just don't duplicate it and keep the financial boo-boos to a minimum. It's absolutely true. There was also another, We would usually we would show this to people. I don't know if I can do this without visuals, but I'll pretend to here. We would hold up a tablet, you know, a, a legal pad or something, and we'd tell people, this is you, and this is what you think you are, and these are your boundaries, you think. Well, we want you working way out here beyond the edge, because what you're going to find out is that wasn't your edge, you know? In fact, you could do more, and you could become more, and if you're pushing yourself out beyond the edge, that's what we want. And we'll be there to catch you. Yeah, that was one of the things that I said in that podcast, that you were never alone. It was like you're given a hand grenade, 
a can of tuna fish <laughs> and sent to the woods and said, make advertising. Yeah. We'll see you when you get back. But you were never left alone. Well, actually, we did that a couple of times. We would dream up new <laughs> projects. I remember dr- dreaming up several new projects and the client buys it. Okay, let's do this. And I said, okay, now we got to do it. We got to find somebody to do it because we were already working up, up here at the overload level. So we would hire people and we'd say, okay, here's the idea. This is it. And, and it was usually new territory. It was things that hadn't been done before. And we just kind of hand it to them and say, okay, make it happen. And they always did. Yeah. We handed you Adrian that, didn't yeah. we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Back, Adrian. In, back in the 80s? Yeah. When, when there was hardly any internet to speak of? Right. And we said, no, we can get these oncologists to talk to each other. We can get them to interchange things. We could see it. You could see it. Hard to get the client to see it. Again, one of the things I've always said was that we discovered or we knew or we understood that oncologists were the most data-driven. In fact, the first meeting I went to you, Jane, on Adrian, I didn't understand Every third word, it was like new to me. The whole thing was new. I went home, got my dictionary out. You know, every time I read something, I had to look it up. But these oncologists love data. They love to look at charts and graphs. They wanted to be challenged, they're thinking, and I think we did that. And again, I think what I'm capturing here, what I'm hearing is is something that I was part of with you guys, was it, it was fun. We pushed the envelope, we did it, we had the faith of our clients a lot of the times, and we were moving forward, and the industry was growing in leaps and bounds. It's interesting you say that because, and we've talked to a lot of people recently now that we're back here in New York, it doesn't sound like it's fun, and it doesn't sound like they're doing fun stuff. And we've been communicating with our partner, David Frank. He's now living in Mexico. So he said the same thing. It was so much fun. I do it again in a heartbeat. We loved it, and we did great stuff, and we had great fun, and we pushed ourselves, and our minds were growing. And But I think what's missing, for the people who are going to be listening to this, you know, I have a lot of physicians who follow me, a lot of people on Twitter who are going to come to this, and I've always said to them, today's different. Yeah, there's sort of like Darth Vader on that side. (laughs) No, the funny story is, let me just tell you, this will surprise you. There's a woman I know on Facebook and blah, blah, blah. She said, oh, I worked for uh, SKF at the time, and the agency was so mean to me. I hate agencies. They're such arrogant, mean people. Whatever this is, there's this there attitude. Were, there were many of them. <laughs> I, I'm sure there were, but the fact you, David, me, a lot of people, I mean, Kevin, you know, all the people I know just say, I would do it in a heartbeat. I want to get back to those days. It felt good. We weren't harming anybody. We followed a certain level of ethics. Am I wrong? I mean, on Adriamycin, what I worked on, on other brands you guys were working on, was there anything that you felt were were stepping over the line and, and doing something unethical, either to consumers or physicians? I don't think so. And I think it was because of this basic conservativeness of the industry back that we had very, very strong department that was keeping an eye on what we were doing. Lawyers, the doctors, regulatory people, editors, yeah. the regulatory group. And they were in charge. <laughs> they were the final word. And they were tough. They were really tough. But they were also fun. We had a good time with them. And if you respected them and they respected you, they could say, here's the law and here's where you stay within it. And you say, well, is this within it, the law? Yeah. Is this? No. 
is this? Yeah. And you felt your way and you stayed within the parameters you needed to stay within. But Again, it was back, a collaborative effort. But that goes back to that relationship with regulatory, with editing and so forth. On well, that I, it's part of that. It's also the relationship with FDA. In those days, when I was head of advertising at Squid, I would have to go down to the FDA on a regular basis to discuss issues. You know, because while we were not pushing very hard, we were at the edge. And so you'd go down there and you'd meet with the FDA people and go over what you plan to do and basically try to get them to agree that that was within the limit. Invariably, the people I met with at FDA had the basic attitude, we're the police. That's who we are. We're here to keep you from doing bad things. Now, they're the customer. Here's your money. Now, approve now, my drug, please. Approve my drug. And they do. They get a that's a whole different relationship. And FDA may claim that you know they're still at arm's length, but you can't be when you're getting that kind of money. Yeah. And when your whole department is funded by an industry, yeah. there's got to be a fuzziness that creeps into that relationship. Yeah, and I think that was the fuzziness that people talk about when the changes were giving out pens and pencils and pads to physicians and the rest of it. Hey, I think we're going to take a break right here. There's much more in part two where we talk about patient and physician engagement and some thoughts on improving patient knowledge and information gathering and how to use that with a physician. So check out part two next week. And obviously, if you have any comments, please leave them. I'd love to know what you think. Again, thank you.